Who's fired up? Yes. Good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to see all your beautiful faces. Thank you for joining us this morning. And uh, I'll have to say, I, I can't promise I'll do this without crying, but um, a lot of prayer went into this weekend. And I'll tell you something. The enemy knew something good was going to come from this weekend, and he tried really, really hard to stop it, including some of our speakers being ill, uh, flights needing to be rescheduled, um, vendors not being able to make it, and you know what? Um, your prayers paid off, and it was a beautiful weekend of our, welcome, our community just coming out in droves on Friday night and supporting our vendors, which in turn supported what took place yesterday for the anti-trafficking awareness weekend, and it was a chock-full day of really good and hard truths to hear. Um, but we had so many blessed conversations. Um, people drove in from really all over the state. We had volunteers fly in from multiple states to be part of the weekend. And we know that people left here yesterday beginning to process how they could be a part of the solution. And that was our prayer and that was our vision. And I'm so thankful um, for really how he ordained all of it. And um, so thank you. Thank you for praying. One of the blessings that have come from the weekend um, was getting to share my dear friend Shelly with you this morning. When we asked her to be a part of the event yesterday, I said, how do you feel about uh, you know, sharing on Sunday morning? Dustin would really love for you to share. And I, I remember talking to Dustin about it, and he said, I, no, I mean more than five or ten minutes. I mean she shares and I sit and listen, and that's the kind of pastor we have. And um, so I want to share a little bit about Shelly with you, and then I'll, I'll connect a little bit with how we got to meet. Um, but Shelly is an entrepreneur, and uh, she works on behalf of the poor in Haiti um, through sustainable job creation. That's been her heartbeat. She'll share that more with you in a short bit here. Her heartbeat is to provide a solution to the orphan crisis, and through her Fair Trade certified business, Papillon Marketplace, which you can see behind me, um, papillon means butterfly in Creole or French, French, Creole, both. Are you shaking your head? Okay. Um, papillon Marketplace has become a beacon of hope for mothers and fathers who would otherwise have to abandon their children to orphanages or even perhaps worse, um, really mainly because they can't afford to keep their children. <coughs> Shelly spent most of the last decade uh, living in Haiti, where she learned Haitian Creole, and she'll share more of her story of living in Haiti, too. But she's not only become a resource for um, the poor and working with the poor, but also on current events in Haiti, and she really does a beautiful job of keeping us updated um, on what's going on there uh, through her Facebook page. Shelly's the mother of four amazing children, and two of them are adopted from Haiti. And she currently splits her time now between Haiti, and Florida, and so it's just a quick hop, skip, and a jump from Miami to Haiti for her there. She's written two books, and if you look out on the table in the foyer, um, you'll notice a sign-up sheet to order those, but uh, the first one she wrote in 2017 called Shelley in Haiti, and a couple years later she wrote The Orphan Gospels, and really, um, this, is, this is kind of a piece of my story with Shelley. I've been selling Papillon Marketplace goods for the last eight years, never met Shelley face-to-face, -face, but always just felt 
um, drawn to her and in the work and her heart and what she's doing. Um, given that I've traveled to Haiti many times and, and seen it for myself, uh, I truly and fully believe that sustainability and development is an answer, an absolute answer in countries like Haiti. Um, when I read her book, though, Shelley in Haiti, I remember crying, reading it, and just thinking um, how much I wanted to hug her and tell her I loved her. I never knew if I'd get to meet her face to face. But last April, um, during a trip to Florida with my discipleship group, and many of them are here this weekend, and I'm so thankful they flew in um, to be a part of the weekend. But they surprised us with a visit from Shelly. <laughs> and it was like full circle moment for us. Um, and I said, Shelly, I'm Audra. <laughs> we've known each other for a long time, but we've never met. And we just embraced. And I got to tell her I loved her. And it was um, such a gift for me. So knowing that um, she could be here this weekend and us get to spend time. She's a dear sister and a kindred spirit. And she has a beautiful, beautiful testimony to share with you today. And I just pray that you're extremely blessed and also feel um, like you need to be part of the solution in some way, shape, or form and be inspired what she shares with you. So would you help me give a warm and loving East Point welcome to Shelly. I'm taking more of the tissues. <laughs> we both needed the tissues today. That's why there's a box up here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Audra. Appreciate it. Isn't she great? She's such a cool person. Um, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be able to share just my story of what has been going on in Haiti. As you know, Haiti is hurting really badly. I'm, I'm sure you've heard some stories recently of things going on there. Um, all of that stuff is very close to me in, in terms of what I do there. Um, in the span of the last four months, we've had a president be assassinated. The police chief resigned. The gang firepower is bigger than the police's firepower in Haiti. Um, we've got an earthquake, a hurricane. Um, what else could go wrong other than 17 missionaries being kidnapped? Um, the kidnapping has been going on for about two years, and it's terrorizing the population. Um, it's something that I would love for everyone to just keep Haiti on your hearts in prayer, um, because the people who suffer are the innocent ones, the ones who don't have anything to do with anything, but now their ability to just live um, day to day is being severely limited and so obviously those things are really hard for me to watch and um, feel like there's no way I can do what needs to be done on my own and it would require a lot of people really caring about Haiti for things to change. So I want to just tell you how I got involved with Haiti. So 2007 I was living in Canada. My husband was going to uh, to school um, for his master's in theology, and I was sitting at home, stay-at-home mom, um, two babies, and I wanted to have a big family, and I couldn't have more kids, and so I started looking at adoption, and, you know, it was kind of just your typical Christian housewife. I hadn't really done anything, you know, remarkable or, you know, of, of, of noteworthiness um, at that point, and um, I started looking at uh, orphanages and ways to adopt and um, really just felt like that would be such a beautiful, I mean, if I can't have children, I mean, even if I could have children, adoption is such a beautiful uh, demonstration of what God does with us and how he 
brings us into the fold and into his family. And um, so I, um, I was looking on one of those waiting children websites and, you know, scanning through all of the places that you can adopt from. And I, I saw this little face from Haiti and I thought, hmm, isn't that in Africa somewhere? You know, I don't, I don't really know anything about Haiti. And found out it's 45 minute flight from Miami. And I thought, wow, you know, that's not that far. Like, that's definitely something that I could explore and, and potentially really be involved with. Um, and so I kind of honed in on one particular orphanage that I was interested in in potentially adopting from, and I'm kind of an all-in sort of person, and so I wanted to go meet the children. I wanted to go see the situation that they were living in. I wanted to know more. And so I flew to Haiti, and for a week, I spent time at an orphanage living there with the children. And I was sitting there on the balcony of the orphanage with the kids all playing in the courtyard below. We've got 12-foot tall block fences for security with barbed wire, a security guard at the gate. There's secure, armed security everywhere. And I'm sweating profusely in the 100 degree humidity, 100% humidity with 100 degree heat, you know. And um, I'm, I'm watching the kids play Ring Around the Rosie or something like that down there. And they're, they're chattering in Creole. And, you know, it's just sort of this kind of beautiful moment. And I'm, I'm, I'm imagining myself being the mother to one of these children. And I, there's a knock at the gate. And another knock at the gate, and the, the guard, there's heavy steel barriers that they have to open up. And this little frail, you know, five foot two woman walks in the gate. And as soon as she walks in the gate, she's got a little bag in her hand. And one of the little boys broke free from the gate, from the little game of Ring Around the Rosie, and just beelines to this woman and throws himself in her arms. And she embraces him and she snuggles up to him and she shows him the little treats. and. I looked over the orphanage director who was sitting right next to me. I said, who, who's that? And he said, that's his mom. And my heart just flopped upside down because all of a sudden, these children were not orphans to me. These were brokenhearted women who had been forced to leave their children there because they knew that they would be better provided for there than what they could do for themselves. My heart really went out. I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old at the time, and I could not imagine the moment that I would have to leave my kids somewhere so that they could live. And I felt like in that moment, God put this passion and this desire in my heart to stand in that place for the mothers in Haiti so that they wouldn't have to give their kids up. Now, I'm just one person, so I didn't have, like, this huge... Um, idea that I could do much, but I wanted to do something. Nine months later, I moved to Haiti with my two kids, uh, my, my little babies. They grew up in Haiti. And um, I, knowing I couldn't just show up and start doing what I wanted to do, I found a place as a, a parent, a house parent in an orphanage. So I lived for a year in an orphanage and really just got to see what it's like for children living in orphanage. How are they interacting with each other? What do they do when they don't have parents? You know, what kinds of things maybe are they missing out on? What's the culture that is being cultivated in these children um, as they're being raised sort of collectively without parents? And I also got to see the process that happens when a mom is faced with that decision of, do I leave my child in an orphanage? And so it would usually go something like this. A woman would show up at the orphanage with a baby in tow 
And she would say, man, I don't have anything to give my kids. Um, we're, we haven't eaten in two days. Is there anything you can do? Because the orphanages are kind of like the established missions all over Haiti. And um, y- usually it was a response of, no, we barely have enough to take care of the kids that are within our care. That's not what we do. Sorry, we can't help you. Two days later, she comes back, and she's more desperate. And the same conversation, is there anything that you guys can do to help me? No, the only thing we do is we, we, we adopt kids out. We can take your child and, and then potentially place them on an adoption list um, for families in America who, who need kids or who want to have kids. And um, by the third time she comes back, she's so desperate that she just, just leaves her ch- child there. You know, and it's not what we think of when we think of adoption. It's not, it really did us, I did this whole paradigm shift in my head about what's really going on. And again, I just felt like it shouldn't be easier to leave your child than to find a job to where you can support your child. And so I really wanted to figure out what does a mom need in order to be able to keep her kids? And I did all the calculations for, you know, if a mom has three kids, what does she need to live? And I came up with about, it's about 200 to $300 a month to where she could shelter herself, send her kids to school, and feed them. I mean, just the bare minimum. But I thought, you know, that's doable. I bet I could help a couple women. So I moved out of the orphanage after a year and kind of getting accustomed to the culture and, and understanding things a little bit better. Learning Creole from kids is great. They're not judgy. Um, <laughs> and uh, so... So I started with four women that I had identified as being high risk. And, um, you know, one of them actually in that time period at the very beginning, she did relinquish her child to an orphanage um, while I was just starting up trying to help them. So they would come over Tuesdays and Thursdays. I had a, a ministry at the, at, the t- at the time for the street kids in the neighborhood who didn't have enough to eat. And so they would come over about at the same time that these women would, that I'd be working with these women. So they would knock on the door and we'd make a big pot of beans and rice and everyone would get fed. And the kids would try and stay as long as they possibly could because we had a TV and they could watch cartoons. And, um, and uh, the ladies would make these bracelets out of whatever beads we could find downtown, little coconut beads or wooden beads that we'd find. And we'd make these funny little bracelets that remind me of something that, you know, your first grader would bring home for Mother's Day from school, you know, that kind of situation. And, um, and, and I would post, post a picture on Facebook, and I would say to all of my friends on Facebook, you want to buy a bracelet for $10? If you buy this, the money goes directly in her hands, and she can feed her kids this week. And so, of course, I was selling hundreds of bracelets really quick because people love to help. People love to to be a part of that story of helping mothers in need. And, and I think for a lot of us at that time, that was a story that was just brand new and hadn't been told um, about the, the invisible mothers behind um, the orphan ep- epidemic. So, so the ladies are making these funny little bracelets that we're selling. And I'm thinking, well, this isn't going to last forever if I don't think of something a little bit better to make. And so I started experimenting with paper beads because they were doing that in Africa, but I didn't want to just do normal paper beads because I didn't want to look exactly the same. So we started working with um, lightweight cardboard. And, you know, you think about gift packaging. I was like, what else is kind of that light, lightweight cardboard? And it was dawned on me that cereal boxes are a great weight. So I was like cutting up cereal boxes and I was like, ladies, you want to try this? And they're kind of like, nah, we're good. <laughs> we'll just stick with the coconut beads. But these street kids are over in the house, right? And they're watching me and I'm trying to roll these paper beads or these uh, cereal box beads. And they're like, we'll try. 
And they're like, can we sell jewelry too? And then we can send, you know, pay for ourselves to go to school. And I was like, well, I didn't really think about working, you know, job creation with street kids so much. I was working with mothers, but I kind of let them join in. And um, within one month, the street kids cereal box bead jewelry was outselling the women two to one. And so what do you think happened? The women were like, sign me up, I'm rolling beads, you know? So we, we started, we started with our basic cereal box ornaments and, and, and bracelets, and you know, there's some out in the foyer. I'm sure you saw them on the way in. Um, and we were sitting there one day in January of 2010, and the earth started shaking, and we went through one of the most catastrophic um, days in recent history um, with the, the earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010 altogether. And um, it was a pivotal moment for me because I had never experienced what I saw uh, on that day and in the weeks to follow. Um, I saw children who were crushed to death. I saw women walking around without arms. I saw, um, I saw sepsis and all of it. It was like a war zone, you know? And it was the first time in my life that I, having been raised in a very sheltered um, Christian home, that I had really, really seen pain in the world, that I'd really seen suffering in that in that degree, and it made me question, as we all do when we, when we come face to face with real trauma, we all ask the question, why God? Why did you let this happen? Why? Why the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere? Why would you allow 200,000 people on that day to die? And it made me really question him and his goodness. And so I went on this journey for about three years where I wasn't sure. I knew I wanted to stay and I knew I wanted to help them because they needed that, but I really wasn't sure what God was doing in that and, and if he was really truly going to help. When we, when we start working with broken people, when we start working with hurting people, one of the things that we don't fully expect and is not really marketed to us, for example, when you see the commercials on TV about giving to children in need or becoming a foster parent or adopting a foster pet, it's always these sort of angelic, doughy-eyed images that you're presented that is not at all what it's like in the real world. If anybody here has been a foster parent, has adopted, has worked with people with addiction issues, has worked with human trafficking survivors, it's messy. It's messy and it hurts and you get hurt in the process because we're broken people. And one of the things that I think that we're all taught to expect suffering for our faith in the sense that being persecuted for our faith or we talk about Jesus' suffering on the cross, about how he was beaten and how he was badly bruised and how he was killed. But we don't really talk about what happened right before that and how his heart was broken when he was abandoned when he was rejected, when he was, when he was betrayed. And so if you wanted to look at Luke 22, I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's, it's a long one. But the first thing that you see, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. 
they were bros, you know? There's 12 of them. They were together for three years. They shared everything. They went everywhere together. These were people that were Jesus's best friends. And he was betrayed to the death by one of them. You go down a little bit further into the chapter, the next thing it talks about is Peter. He's going to betray Jesus too. He's going to walk away in Jesus' time of need, and Jesus can't rely on him. The next paragraph, Jesus on the Mount of Olives. He's got his 12 disciples with him on the Mount of Olives, and he's so, he has so much anxiety, and he's praying so hard that his, he's bleeding out of his forehead. That's how intense his struggle was at that moment because of what he was about to go through. And he said, he asked them, can you stay with me? Can you just be with me in this moment? Um, any of you guys have maybe been in the hospital um, and you have that person in the ER with you and you're in so much pain, it, you look over and they're sleeping, it doesn't feel too good, right? Um, I remember being in labor and that happening to me it was not a happy moment. <laughs> and, uh, and yet Jesus is there and they fail him again. And so his heart was broken by the people that he, he cared about and that, that cared about him the most even before he went to the cross for us. And the thing is that we can, when we are working with the broken and with the brokenhearted, and when we put ourselves out there to follow God into that arena, we can expect that our hearts are going to get broken. I have so many stories of heartbreak. I can't even, like, make a list long enough. Um, I had an artisan who... Um, she had cancer, and she had been with me for eight years. She had five children, um, and ca cancer chemotherapy is not easy to get in Haiti. So uh, we we did all the work, connected with the right organizations to get her the chemotherapy she needed. She got a diagnosis; she needed a double mastectomy in order to live. Her husband decides he doesn't want to let her do that, um, and in Haiti, it's very much the husband's decision if a woman is uh, is able to do those things. And so she progressively got worse and worse. And so then we paid for, you know, okay, no d double mastectomy, at least try the chemo. Nope. So he took her out into the countryside to voodoo doctor and a few months later, actually a couple weeks later, she died. She left behind four children, five children, I'm sorry. And the next day her husband shows up at work and he very aggressively is demanding that I pay for the funeral, that I pay for the kid's school, that I give him a lump sum of money just for his grief. And uh, I was hurt. I was hurt because I had tried everything to help this woman live. And, she, and it was a life and death decision. And I, it was out of my hands. I tried my best. And I, I didn't succeed, you know? Um, I have another artisan who I went on a limb for. He was uh, um, he was born in he was born in Haiti, but ended up in the foster care system in in uh, Florida, and uh, got into the wrong crowd and ended up getting deported back to Haiti. And I have a bunch of uh, deportees with that story that I work with in Haiti. Honestly, I love the 
deportees we work with, I couldn't do what I do without them. And um, it's kind of funny because you hear it on the news about deportees, but it's really kind of cool to be on the other side of that and to meet and work with people who have been deported. And um, they have been such a valuable asset for our company. But one of them in particular was in charge of buying the gas um, every day. And um, over the two years that he worked with us, um, after about two years, we finally caught on to the fact that when he was going out to buy gas, he and the gas attendant were figuring out a racket to skim uh, money off the top. And we calculated it might have been, over the two years, about $20,000 that he skimmed. I was hurt. I was hurt because I was trying so hard to do the right thing, to provide for women, um, to make sure that everyone got paid. I worked really hard for that. And then he took that. He took that from them. I have so many more stories like that of where you've invested in people and that they've come back and bit you, you know? One of the most surprising things is when it comes from fellow Christians. Like I said, I was going through a really rough time after the earthquake. I had a, a lot of doubts. And it was at that time that I really needed people in the body of Christ to rally and come around me. But that wasn't what happened. When you're on the mission field, people have expectations of you. And even though I didn't necessarily call myself a missionary, I was just a woman down there trying to do what I felt like God was leading me to do. There was a lot of judgment about how I did things. It feels like if you're, if you're staying at home and not doing anything, nobody's critical of you. But as soon as you go to try and do something, then everybody has something to say about it. And I'm not very thick-skinned, so it hurt. Like, I got hurt a lot by Christians over the years telling me what I should and shouldn't be doing and how I should be leading these Bible studies or doing this evangelism or doing this or that or people saying they're not going to buy from our artisans because the artisans aren't Christian enough or, you know, those kinds of things. And, and those things are, are hard to work through when you're in ministry. Um, my kind of takeaway from all of that and what I learned through my own journey of following God, being broken, working with broken people, is that the most important thing that God is calling us as people to do in our situations, wherever we're at, whatever your heartbeat is, wherever your ministry is, the most important thing, love people. Love people first. Don't worry about the outcome. Obviously, love God, love people is kind of the the new commandments in the new testament but sometimes when we have been hurt by people we kind of look at a person and think hmm i'm going to evaluate this situation and i'm going to see whether or not the energy that i put into them is going to give me a good return whether or not they're going to be worth it and we're evaluating them before we choose to love them before we choose to put ourselves out there for them and i have really been felt like I've really had this lesson pounded into me over the years of this, like, don't worry about that. You're not responsible for the outcome. You're responsible to be like Jesus and to love people. And whatever he chooses to do in that situation, that's him. And he gets the glory for that, too. So, sorry, I'm, gonna, I'm skipping ahead in my notes here. We don't always have successes, right? So when we're choosing to love people, again, you look at foster, say foster children's statistics, it's not good. It's not a good outcome for kids who are raised in foster care. For kids who have raised institutionally in orphanages, the odds are against them. When you're working with people who have addiction issues, 
the odds are against them. And the funny thing is that nobody puts their failures on social media, right? So we don't get to see that. But I can guarantee you in my life, some people will look at me and say, oh wow, you've done a really great thing. Do you know right now we have 250 parents working every day in Haiti to provide for over a thousand people, their kids included? So me taking one little leap, it wasn't a leap, a tiny step of faith, you know, to help four women turned into 20 women, which turned into 40 men and women, because I realized really quickly the fathers need to be involved as well, and they need empowerment as well. And then, um, and then growing to 100, and then growing to 200, and now 250 people. And like I said, that is a success that, you know, that you see. But I can't tell you the hundreds and hundreds of times I've tried to do something that failed, and it's okay. It's okay because that's not what my job is. My job isn't to be a failure or a success. My job is just to simply love people and let God do his thing. When you, I love the um, Lord's Prayer. I figure when Jesus comes to earth and he tells us, this is how you pray, we should probably pay attention to that, right? It says, and I think in the original it's Abba, which is Daddy, which is Papa, Dad in heaven. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in, is in heaven. In heaven there's no poverty. In heaven, there's no brokenness. In heaven, he makes all things right, and he makes all things new. So he's giving us a prayer of justice. We want justice to come. We want things to be made right. Give us today our daily bread. He doesn't want us to be hungry, none of us. And forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgiveness. Somehow he knew that we would need that in there, that we would need to learn how to forgive and that we would need a lot of forgiveness in the process. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What a humble statement. Help us, God. Help us not sin. Jesus himself came and said, this is how you're supposed to pray. I feel like it's powerful. So we have loving God, loving people, and we have forgiveness. I guess the question at the end of the day is like, why, why, what makes me keep going? What do I, what do I want to accomplish? You know, obviously we have this incredible story of all of these people working, a thousand people being able to eat, empowered. They don't have to beg for it. They don't have to have rice handed out to them or medical missions coming to fix the problems. They have enough money that they can take care of themselves because of the work that they've done. And there's so much dignity. There's so much uh, freedom and being able to work for what you need. And so ultimately, though, for me, why do I do this? I think that because in the end, when it's all over, when we stand in front of Jesus, there's nothing that I want more than to just have him say, good job, good job. You, all I wanted from you is to try to be like me. All I wanted from you is to love me and to love my people. Isn't that what he tells us? Isn't that what the whole Bible really sums up with, is summed up by? And so I hope that as we 
struggle with brokenness, with hurt, with doubting God, with not wondering why God does the things he does and not understanding him, that we can, in faith, believe that he is good and that we can, in faith, know that if we follow him and that we do those things, that we can stand in front of him one day and he's going to say, well done. I just want to finish up with Isaiah 58, one of my favorite verses. We have a butterfly, these metal art butterflies all over our property, um, our artisan center in Haiti. And I have this written on one of the butterflies, Isaiah 58, 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break, will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Thank you for listening to me. Shelly, thank you so much for sharing with us this morning. I've got a couple of questions just to ask you as we, uh, as we uh, wrap up this morning. First, um, you mentioned your time of struggling after the earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that we all have different, you know, different shaking events in our lives where everything falls apart. Uh, and I know some of our people here today um, are in the midst of those events right now. Mm-hmm. What would you say to those who are in the midst of of incredible pain in order to help um, help give them courage through this time? I think that during my, my years of doubt, of not understanding why God chooses to allow bad things to happen, one of the things that I was really profound to me was how even though people might be judgmental or people might criticize you for your lack of faith, I always felt like Jesus was on my side. Like, I always knew that he was not judging me, and he was not surprised by my questions. He was not surprised by my doubt, and he was so patient. And so if you are in a place in your life where you are going through pain and struggling and not understanding why God let that happen, I just want to say he has got you, and he's okay with you taking your time to process, and he's going to bring you out better on the other side because of it. And the one thing that I had to just decide in my heart, and this is kind of what, is what ended my three years of, of questioning, was I finally came to the point where I said, either God is good or he's not. You have to make up your mind what you believe. And so I took that step of faith, and I said, you know what, God, I just can't believe that you're bad. I know that you're good. And I know that if, that, if you are good, then that means I just don't understand, but I know I can trust you. And I know I can trust that you got me through this and that you will get me through this. And so that's probably what I would say. Amen. Thank you. Uh, I know a big part of your story as well um, uh, starts, with, starts with street kids. We've got a growing heart for street kids mm-hmm. around here. Um, and seeing how a kid growing up on the streets can somehow be transformed by Christ mm-hmm. um, is, is a remarkable journey. Do you have a story you can share with us where you've seen a street kid uh, grow from being a kid on the streets to to being uh, a fully full you know a fully devoted follower of Christ who's um, 
who's uh, self-sustaining and everything else. Mm -hmm. So some of the original street kids that we started with in 2008, you know, when they were 13 years old or, you know, around there, you know, now they're, they're approaching 30 years old, you know, and they're fathers. And many of them are still with us after all of that time. They started out as bead rollers, and then we progressed to teaching them basic computer skills, Excel spreadsheets, um, learning how to use our computer systems to see orders coming in, um, teaching them all of the different skills that you will see in the back of, of different things that they can make. Um, and then one of, in particular, one, one of them, his name is Richard, um, he, he really showed an interest in media. And so one of the biggest things, obviously, if you're doing what I'm doing in Haiti, is that people, people if, they want, if you want people to see what you're doing, you have to show them really good quality photographs and videos and you know they need to see it firsthand and and um, so I over the course of the last couple of years have trained him on photography and social media and so he is running our TikTok for Papillon Marketplace himself and I, I even told him I was like I'm not I'm not even gonna tell you what to put on there I said just make it happy <laughs> no no bad stories because aren't we tired of bad stories about Haiti like I want some good stories about Haiti about what God is doing and how cool he is being to the Haitian people like I want to see those stories out there so I was like just go out there and show off the joy show off the empowerment show off the good things and so he's running our Poppy and Marketplace TikTok all of the artisan pictures that you see of them working on our Instagram, that's all Richard taking those pictures. He gives me daily to the minute update videos and pictures every single day. And it's so cool because so many of our customers, they'll look at the pictures, they can see, oh, they're working on my order in there, you know? And it just makes it that much more real. And it, it's really cool to see a 13-year-old who's malnourished knocking at my gate, hoping that I have a little beans and rice left over for 13 years ago to now he's a man, a father, my social media manager for the entire organization, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> nice. That's incredible. I'd, I'd love to just take, a, take time to pray for you now and just to, uh, just to allow God to uh, allow us to bless you. You've blessed us so much. So if we could bless you by praying for you, that'd thank be you. great. Thank you, yeah, of course. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for uh, your love for us. We thank you uh, for the work that you've been doing in Shelly's life. Uh, we thank you for giving her that initial passion in her heart. And pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us that passion as well. Uh, Lord, we pray for Shelly. We pray your protection over her, Lord, as Haiti is in such a rough place right now. We pray your uh, protection over her people. We pray that you would do a deep work in this season uh, that helps bring many more, uh, many more people out of poverty in Haiti and helps bring them to a place where they can provide for their children, where they can keep their children. And we pray that, Lord, you would just raise up those children to be some of the next leaders of, of Haiti. Um, we pray that you would raise them up from uh, within and give them strength and courage and vision uh, for, to help that nation become all it can become. And I pray it would be done for your glory. I watch over her now as she travels. Watch over her as she uh, shares. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. If you are a guest at East Point today, we want to thank Oh, hang on. This, let's just go ahead and give her another hand as she shall uh, over
If you are a guest here at East Point today, we want to thank you for worshiping with us. We uh, are encouraged by having you here with us. We'd love to connect more with you. Uh, you can do so by logging on to our website. You can go to ecc.life, and you can connect with us right there, or you can talk to me after the service. We also have an event coming up this next weekend called A Taste of East Point. If you are new and would like to hear more about East Point, or if you're interested in joining the church, this is an event that's for you. It's after this service next week. Uh, and uh, we would love for you to come and hear more about it and to enjoy a good meal as well. You can sign up online at eastpointchristian.com slash events. It'll be right there, uh, and you'll be able to see that and sign up for that. Hey, we have been challenging you here lately with the Turkey Trio. The Turkey Trio is kind of our year-end uh, generosity initiative where we want to challenge you to do three things. The first thing we challenged you to do last weekend was shop. Remember that? Uh, we encourage you to come on Friday evening of this weekend. We had several people, uh, we, had, we, had, uh, we had hundreds of people in our building on Friday night coming through and shopping uh, and uh, doing fair trade gifts uh, and things like that. You have another opportunity to do that today with Shelly Jean's booth that is set up out in the foyer. You can help support those men and women and children in Haiti uh, by buying her handcrafted gifts that are out there that were made by Haitian artisans. Uh, so stop by after the service and check that out if you would. The second thing that we challenge you to do after shop was bring. You remember the bring? The bring is to bring food for those who are in need for Thanksgiving dinners. We're serving people in our area. This is something that the youth does each year, but we're encouraging you to do as well. And out on the Thanksgiving decorated table out there, you will see that there's some cards. Next weekend is when we bring that food back. And so if you can bring that food back next weekend, whether it's, uh, if it's just uh, regular goods, you can bring it here. If it's goods that needs to be refrigerated, you can bring it to the kitchen next Sunday morning, uh, and we will get that ready to go for you. Uh, we'll get that ready to go into Thanksgiving baskets for families who are in need. The third and final challenge that we have for you is to give. Um, we have been working with street kids in Nairobi, Kenya. You heard about street kids in, in Haiti today. We've been working with street kids in Nairobi, Kenya, and uh, I've got a couple of pictures. I think Can we still get those pictures back up on the screen here of a couple of the boys that we have the possibility of helping out here through scholarships? Uh, so this uh, is Keith. Uh, Keith and then Harrison is in the next picture. Keith and Harrison back in January of 2016 were attacked on the streets and beaten to within inches of their life being taken from them. And in places like Haiti and places uh, like Kenya, you have to pay uh, for medical care before you receive it. And they had no means of doing so. And so our missionaries felt led by the Spirit to step in and to raise funds for both Keith uh, and for Harrison, and got them the corrective surgeries that they needed so that they not only their lives could be spared, but also so that they could return to a sense of normality. Uh, since then, Keith and Harrison have been baptized. They have, walked, they have come off the streets, uh, and they have been in our schooling program with the, some of the scholarships that you can help provide this year. And in fact, Keith is, I'm sorry, Harrison is getting ready to graduate near the top of his class in school uh, after being a street kid just five years ago. And so these are some of the kids that you can help out. Basically, for $25 in the little red envelopes back there that you can grab, uh, for $25, you can pay for an entire week of schooling, room, and board for a street kid uh, in Kenya. And so you can take those envelopes, there are multiples of 25, and you can either give online through our website, you can just drop down the menu there where it says uh, for a street kid scholarships, or you can bring those red envelopes back and just drop them in the offering bucket when you come back now through the end of November. 
All right, I think that is uh, one more announcement for you, and then we're good. Uh, that is, uh, we have a family game night coming up on Friday, November 19th from 6 to 9 p.m. out here in the foyer. We invite you to come bring some games to share. Uh, it's good, it's fun for all ages, so we invite you to come and join us for a night of family fun on Friday, November 19th. All right, uh, let me just ask you to stand now, and I would like to just say a blessing over you as we wrap up the service. May God bless you with a broken heart for the things of this world that are broken. And as you find the heart of Jesus in the midst of that brokenness, may you have the strength and courage to reach out and to move and to bring healing and hope to those who are hurting all around you. Amen. Go in peace.